Hi, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to the Who the Fuck Podcast. Inquisitive, authentic, unapologetic. A show designed to create connection, fuel compassion, activate change, and figure out just who the fuck you are. Hey gang, you're listening to the latest episode of the Who the Fuck podcast, and today we're joined by Ryan Henry Ward, but there's a good chance that if you're in or around Seattle, you know him better as just Henry. Ryan's unique artwork is widespread throughout the city and surrounding areas, bringing a sense of lightheartedness and whimsy to locals and tourists alike. So I'm thrilled to have Ryan with me to learn a little bit more about the man behind the murals and to share the gift of Ryan's art with any listeners who aren't yet familiar. So Ryan, why don't you share a little bit about yourself? Thanks a lot. Yeah, it's great to be here. I appreciate it. I'm so excited to have you. It's really awesome. It. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. Um, I always like having an opportunity to share a bit about myself. A lot of people see my murals around and see the art around that I do. And for them to be able to make a connection with who's making it, I think is important. Yeah, for sure. When I first moved to Seattle, we moved here a little over three years ago. I was surprised when I actually saw you in person, like, because there's almost something enigmatic about your artwork, because it is to somebody who's not familiar with the area or your art. It's just like, who's Henry? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I get like when people meet me, a lot of times they're just surprised, like, oh, I thought you were a lot older or I thought you were a lot younger or <laughs> they had a different idea of who they thought I was. I'm 45 years old. I was born in Bozeman, Montana, lived there first 10 years of my life on a farm. Okay. And so I grew up on a farm with two brothers, pretty poor. Like my dad was a welder. And my mom was a waitress and we kind of had a farm that my great grandfather built the farmhouse and we raised food and vegetables to kind of supplement. My, my parents were teenagers when they had us. Okay. So. That's kind of how my life started. I mean, that definitely has an impact for sure. I mean, it all comes back to childhood in some way or yeah. another, whether or not you think it does. You're like, no, it, it doesn't. And I've said this on other episodes, too. And it's like the more you start to like peel away at the questions you have for yourself, the more you start to understand like how much of it's tied to some of the things that are implicit for us and then other things that have sort of been trained into us just as a matter of circumstance. Yeah. Yeah. And as my career choice to be a visual artist, the roots do come from early childhood. So a lot of that understanding of where my art comes from and who I am and why I do what I do is like kind of rooted in what was going on in my mind as a child and how I kind of continued that on into adulthood. That's really cool. So your art is really, I think, in a lot of ways, very playful. Is that something that sort of comes up for you when you're imagining where you're going with your paintings? Yeah, definitely. I started drawing at a really young age, but I also had a, as a child, had a really vivid imagination. And I mean, it's clear that you do still. Yeah. I feel like the things that you conceive of, I genuinely look at some of them and I'm like, how? Like, where does it even come from? Right. Yeah. There's been like this emerging imagination land, I guess, <laughs> my whole life. Yeah. I close my eyes and I see really strong visuals and have since I was a little kid. And not only do I see visuals, but there's this scratch at the back of my mind to bring these ideas out into the world. And so ever since I was young, I've had this urge to share what I'm seeing in my mind. That's really beautiful. And I, I mean, certainly appreciate it. And I think a lot of people who experience your artwork do. It was really exciting for me when we first moved here. One of the, I think it might have been the first painting that I saw of yours was over um, 
I want to say maybe by the Fremont Bridge, if my memory serves me correctly, was two gnomes. Oh, yeah. And so there's sort of this ongoing joke in my family that garden gnomes made me uncomfortable when I was a kid. I'm like, they're just weird. What are they doing? I feel like there's an ulterior motive there. So it became an inside joke with our family. And I remember taking a picture of it and sending it to my mom and sort of making a joke about it. And then all of a sudden I was like, wait, your work is everywhere. And because it had your signature on it, I started putting the pieces together and being like, oh, they're all over the city. They're even, I was reading about they're outside of the city. You have some pieces in Bellingham. I think I read, right? So it's really an experience, I think, as somebody who is a transplant to Seattle, to have that sense of discovery really arise for you and to be able to sort of be thrown into the art scene in Seattle through something that is publicly available for display. Anybody of any age of any type can experience it and have their own reaction to it. And to the point where I had this joke with my family, but then my parents came out to visit two Thanksgivings ago and they were really excited to see your work too. Like they knew, they knew what it was. So it's just kind of neat to have that experience. And I love it because it really adds to the cityscape. And it's something that I think makes this city really special. Yeah, definitely. I was inspired by murals when I first moved into Seattle. And there's other places in the world that have a lot more. And then when I first started doing murals in Seattle, we had a lot less than we have. And not just less of mine, obviously, but less of everybody's. And it's more popular in the last decade than it was. Oh, know. that's interesting. That's yeah. that's cool to know. I mean, so if we back up a little bit to sort of how you um, got into the space that you're in now, You mentioned being a child and having this really vivid imagination and really having this urge to expose what you are seeing in a creative way so others could experience it as well. And what really was kind of the moment for you that you said, like, I want this to be my career. This is what I think I need to do with my life. There definitely was a a real specific point in my life. First, when I was younger, I wanted to be a cartoonist, like a Sunday morning comic strip cartoonist was what I wanted to be when I was a kid. and then. I kind of still wanted to do that through high school, and then I kind of lost interest in being a professional artist at all through my 20s, but I was making a lot of art and exploring and experimenting a lot, and I was thinking, well, maybe this will be something I'll do when I'm like 65 or something, or retirement kind of idea. I'll make children's books or something when I'm older, and so I went to college and got my degree in writing art and storytelling for children and it was a real creative writing degree laced with some art classes and some theater classes and stuff. Oh, that's cool. So I think when I was reading bits and pieces about you leading up to this, just kind of inform myself a little bit more beyond what I knew from our brief meetings was that before you really committed fully to your art, you were also working with children with special needs. Is that correct? I was, yeah. So I was a social worker and I was working with kids with psychological and emotional disorders. And then I also worked with some people with developmental disabilities. And I also worked in an AIDS hospice with adults that were in the process of dying from AIDS. So those were the three things I did as a social worker. That's intense. And I incorporated art into all those jobs. I was doing art with these people because that's what I knew how to do yeah. and how to connect with people. I'm naturally pretty shy person, not super outgoing and not like, hey, I want to talk to you and get to know you. And I'm not super inquisitive. I'll take that role. Yeah. yeah. There's other people that do it better than me, but I really connected with people by just 
making artwork and letting them make artwork and creating bonds like that, more kind of quiet, but we're communicating in ways that were interesting. You yeah, know? it's nonverbal. And I think in a lot of ways, well, especially with people with developmental disorders in general, I know verbal communication can be extremely difficult. My wife actually has historically, until we moved to Seattle, been a behavioral therapist for children with autism. So right. I learned a lot through her own experiences and asking her questions and really seeking to disprove my own ignorance because I think a lot of why people have opinions on things like that is because they don't understand it. And yeah. I'll fully own my ignorance on that. And so it's cool to know that people like yourself are able to take on those roles and be able to create a positive impact through things like using your art and giving them another outlet. Because one of the things that really I found so interesting was we've been together for about 12 years and it was probably very shortly after we met. My wife had said to me, you know, it's not that for instance, somebody with severe autism doesn't understand what you're saying or isn't receptive to it, but they can't communicate to you their response right. to it. And so when you mention that, it really resonates a lot because I think about things like that. Like how right. can you allow somebody to emote when their brain or their bodies won't let them in the way that somebody typically would? Yeah, it's creating a new space. I, I noticed change that people would go through when I would just open my sketchbook and start drawing. There could be conflict in an environment between people or something that's stressing them out. And then I start just making art and not confront the issue that's happening and just make art. Everything calms down. And it was consistent. It was an interesting five years of my life where I watched these serious problems that were kind of manifesting into crisis, just be calmed down by someone in the environment. Like, well, I'm not going to base you on this. I'm going to just sit here and make art. And then they just, poof. there's something like primitive in us drawing or making art that calms us down, you know, and yeah. it goes, Oh wait, this is sacred space. And we all understand it on a primitive level that like we got to calm down. Yeah. You know, we don't want to mess their drawing up, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, No, totally. And it's interesting too, because I think that there's a function of creating art that it allows you to be in the present moment. And we spend so much time. I read something the other night. It was like, we spend too much time in our heads and not enough time in our bodies. And that just really resonates because it's yeah. like, yes, I mean, the reason that we're anxious is because we're thinking so much and we're not just doing. And so I can totally see how going through sort of a process like that could be something that also helps people deescalate really substantial yeah. situations. To your point, it is really primitive. I think there's an innateness to art like in a lot of my backgrounds i do a swirl pattern mm -hmm. and i went through this period where i was just going heavy in the swirl pattern or whatever and people were like why do you do that and i was like Cause it feels good right it feels good to make a swirl it emotionally feels good for me to do it more so than what's it look like it looks like a swirl but like to make the swirl feels good yeah and why does it feel good and it's like finding out that that's one of the oldest symbols of humans. That's one of the oldest cave symbols that they have found is the swirl. And then it, there's so many things with it. It's like a sun travel pattern and it's starting from the center of ourselves and working out, spiraling outwards. I love that. I, I'm so glad you shared that. And it's true. I, cause as you were saying that, I was thinking I'm a big doodler because no. I have ADHD. So a lot of times when I would be in classes or I'm in meetings, like I need to be doing something. There's a lot of times that there are swirls yeah. <laughs> and it's, there's a catharsis that comes with yeah, it for sure. Yeah. That's really interesting to think about. Yeah. And it's a lot of where my shapes of my characters come from is this idea of what oh, just feels good to make these big swooping arm movements on a wall when, yeah. when you're painting. It feels good to 
do a big stroke with curves and roundness and stuff like that, it feels good to make it a certain way. And a lot of my decision making comes from how it makes me feel to make it. You know, That's awesome. Coming into the conversation, I knew there would be a backstory. Every, I think human being obviously has one. That's why I wanted to do the show. But obviously, artists have, I think, sometimes a more prominent story. Typically, we look for that story more in artists. You want to understand why do you do what you do? So in going through my due diligence to have this conversation, I was reading your about me section on your website and you have a crazy story that I think really blew me away. And I debated on how I wanted to segue into this originally because I was thinking I could lead into it, but I almost feel like it would do a disservice to your story for me to try to articulate it. So do you mind sharing a little bit about that experience? And then um, we could talk a little bit about how that really catapulted you to where you are now. Yeah, I don't mind at all. So like I said, I was a social worker for five years and then I went into landscape construction with my brother and I was really enjoying a lot of that process and making water features and doing more of the artistic side of landscape construction. And so I was segueing away from social work and into the construction field and just making things. And I was a couple of years into that and I was actually making money for the first time in my life. And I bought a four-wheeler and it was a big four-wheeler. It was like the biggest one they had. In fact, I went into the motorcycle dealership and said, I want your biggest and baddest four-wheeler. And they're like, this is it. And I was like, I'll take it. (laughs) It was a Yamaha 800, basically had a snowmobile engine in this four-wheeler and it was a big, heavy thing, right? Yeah. And I went out to the dunes in Moses Lake and I was on this night ride with my brother and his friends. And They all had these more sport bikes, these real fast, zippy things. And I had this big, bulky thing that was more for like taking moose out of the woods or something. (laughs) And so I was behind them and we went off. They were in front of me and they just flew off this 10 foot cliff and onto this road. And I went off the cliff. I went head over the handlebars and landed on the ground face down. And then the four wheeler landed on top of me. And they were gone. They were in front of me, so they didn't see it happen. And so I was underneath this four-wheeler for about 30 minutes. And as I was under it, I couldn't get it off me. It was a thousand pound machine. And uh, And you said these were like sand dunes? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I was kind of face down and on this road in the sand dune area with this thing on top of me and I could smell the gas leaking onto me and the engine of it was still running. And it was scary. It was like, when's this thing going to blow up? And also, I'm getting squished to death. So I was going through this process of trying to breathe. As I was attempting to get my breath, it got less and less each time. Like As time went on, I couldn't breathe as much. And I got to the point where, okay, I'm going to die. I don't have that much breath left. It's getting harder and harder to breathe. I started running through like my life and all these things. And I noticed some things as I played through my life that I worried too much. Here I am dying under a four-wheeler. I was 31 years old or something at the time and thinking, this is ridiculous. I'm not even a redneck and I'm dying by a four-wheeler, you know. (laughs) It was kind of comical. Like this didn't fit the poetry of my life, but somehow it was funny. And there was just this moment where I was taking in my last breath and as I was letting it out, I could kind of see the universe unfolding in front of me and I knew I was letting go of my life. And right at that moment, 
some kid had pulled up in his truck and threw the four-wheeler off of me. So it was this last minute, last second life-saving thing that the 16-year-old kid did. And oh my God, I just got chills. I yeah. mean, I, I have to imagine that never gets easier to think about in a way to yeah. come that close. It's weird because I was able to process my life. I was able to go through the process of dying. Without and, dying. And then not dying. Yeah. Like, I mean, I feel like that's a win overall, yeah. <laughs> you know, like because then it sounds like some of that clarity that we seek, but you don't really have the perspective. Right. Certainly, we're not wanting people to have to go through that experience to yeah. get there, but it sounds like it was enlightening for you yeah, to have it, that moment where you realized you had a chance again. Yeah. For better or worse, in some ways, the big thing I came away from was don't worry yeah. and quit worrying and then some ways that was good for me. In some ways it was bad because I quit worrying about everything. Yeah. I quit worrying about doing too many drugs. I quit worrying about like, who cares? I don't care. I just didn't care. I was like, whatever. Yeah. It was good in the sense that I'm not going to do anything that I don't want to do anymore. I'm not going to take a job that I'm halfway interested in. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to belong to groups that I agree with kind of. Yeah. I was in this non-negotiation space where I was like, I'm going to do what I want to do. And that became my art career. And it took a while from that accident to getting that going. It was almost a year. A lot of it was laying in bed injured and not, I had a pretty bad spinal injury, head injury. I mean, I imagine you had to do like physical therapy and stuff or? I did eventually, like initially I dealt with it all on my own. I didn't even go to the doctor to start with. Oh, really? just on black market opiates and staying in bed. And that's what I knew. I didn't know this was before the Affordable Care Act or whatever. And yeah. it was like, this is how you deal with your health when before that was just find a way to deal with it. Yeah, Don't go to the doctor because you can't afford it. It yeah. wasn't in the wheelhouse of that my makes, reality. Like yeah. I broke my hand once and had to fix it without a doctor because go to the doctor wasn't an option. Well, that's, I mean, you raise a very interesting point too, which is, so I remember when I graduated college, I graduated with a film degree and it was in 2008, the economy had crashed. And I remember just being like, I need a job because I need health insurance because what if something happens. And it was like, I don't want to make the decision about what I do and give up my creativity for something like this. But it was before the Affordable Care Act. It was before you could be on your parents' insurance. And so that was a cognizant decision that I made. Right. But it was at the compromise of what I really felt I wanted to do. I mean, it all sort of panned out for me the way that I suppose it should have. I often don't think about it in terms of being an artist and that you're not getting employee subsidized benefits where you yeah. can just go to the hospital and deal with it. And then eventually I just had to. I kept re-injuring my back and eventually had to go get doctor care for it. But it was always emergency room level. Yeah. It was like, go to the emergency room. And then my debt did accumulate. I lost my credit. It was just this dark hole, right? And it was like, okay, I have to do my life a different way. I have to make my own way now without the concern of if I'm in debt or not or whatever. Like well, I just, I've been there. I mean, I totally get that. And it's a hard decision to make because you do what you need to do to get by. And yeah. you also have to sort of relinquish that fear of not having money. I can say with assurance that from what I read about your story that I certainly didn't experience it, I think, to the extent that you did. But I've 
been broke as a joke. So yeah. I totally get that feeling. Right. I think that the circumstance was a little different, but the feeling around we've been sort of trained that money equals security and right. the emotion that goes with that of not having it brings fear to you. And then you're thinking irrationally about things and you right. just sort of start to spiral out on that instead of focusing on the things that actually matter to you. Right. And so do you feel like that was something that essentially was as much as it was a function of finding your purpose was also a healing thing for you? Yeah, I felt like I was backed into a corner, like a trapped animal. All of a sudden, I didn't have a choice. I had to, and it's kind of funny because I had to do what I'm good at. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't able to do other things and just do what I'm good at as a supplemental fun part of those things. And I was like, okay, I have to do my art now. I can't hold a job because I can't sit down or stand up for more than 10 minutes at a time. Yeah. I always have to lay on the ground a lot. I had to keep moving because of my back injury. And I wanted to like resist that. And part of it was I didn't want to sell it out because I felt like it was a real sacred part of myself. I know? totally get that. Yeah. And I actually sort of wanted to ask you about that because I was really actually sort of surprised to read that. I guess I shouldn't be because everybody's got an opinion about everything. But like, to hear people that were like actively anti-Henry art, but why? And not even from the standpoint of an appreciation for the style of art that you do. I think criticizing art that is well-intentioned and really there for enjoyment is weird to me because we all have different preferences. But do you feel like it was hard for you to make that transition because of that feeling of not wanting to sell out. But also, was there any concern around like sort of what the perception of your art would be and any sort of judgment around that? Yeah, I originally felt like I didn't belong in the art scene or things like that. I didn't feel like I was worse of an artist, but I felt like you have to earn your way and you have to work your way up. I just was in a position where it was like, that's not my reality now. I have to push this forward and I can't care what people think. And all of a sudden I was doing the first year I was doing murals. I think I did 35 murals my first year. Wow. And I did 35 my second year. So two years into it from 2008 to 2010, I had 70 murals in the city, which was more than anyone else had had. Were they all commissioned um, or how did you decide you were doing them? Yeah. So the first mural in 2008 was someone who worked at a restaurant and asked me to paint a mural. And then I got so excited about it. I found some other walls that look good. And I went and asked people if I could paint their walls. People were open to it. So I did about three or four that way. What was your first mural? It was this crow and worm. And the crow was about to eat the worm and the worm was smiling at him. Like, yeah. Didn't know it was coming. You yeah, know? yeah. Like, I was just happy to see this guy. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've seen them like you've also done them on people's houses as well, yeah. right? They're sort of like the downtown vibes that you get when you're going through the neighborhood, but there's also randomly you'll stumble upon something yeah. you're like, sweet, that person yeah. has their house painted by Henry. <laughs> yeah, I've done over 300 now. That's I've, crazy. Yeah, I counted them out with my friend Sarah. We're making a book on the, the murals I've done. And I have to imagine it's overwhelming in a good way in that yeah. you can look at it and say like, damn, I did that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was, I think my third year, I don't know where I was at about almost to a hundred. And a friend of mine was like, I wonder what the world record of the most murals in one city is. Right. Yeah. And we looked it up and we found some guy and I think Honolulu had done 89 or something. Oh, wow. Honolulu. And we were like, oh my God, I've done more than that guy. 
And then significantly. Yeah. And at the time I was around 10 over that or something, my third year in. So we're like, okay, I think you got the world record, right? Let's look into this. And so we researched all these cities, who's got the most murals in the city and sure shit. By the third year, I had more murals than anybody has ever had in one city Wow, ever in the history of the world. So it's like, holy shit. You know, that's so cool. That's such a really amazing experience, I imagine, especially as an artist, to know that it would impact so many people because of that. Yeah. I felt like a portal opened up, you know, like some kind of weird space time continuum thing. I'm kind of a science fiction person, but I kind of felt like this portal opened up and it was like, here's this beam of light or something came down from the gods or something and said, now is your time to paint murals, go. Yeah, you yeah. Know? And I was like, oh God, okay, there we go. You know, like <laughs> running around painting murals all over the place because I felt like I don't know when the portal's going to close. You yeah. know, maybe it'll close in one year, six months, I don't know. But this portal that opened up has just kind of stayed open. Did you feel like you had a little sense of that urgency around, I need to make the most of this while it's happening because of the near-death experience that you had, not knowing only like, yes, the opportunity could go away, but also how much time do you actually have? Yeah, I don't know if that was the case. I was loving it, doing something so much fun. And part of it, we were talking about critics. These people were coming out of the woodwork, just hating it. And then the people were coming out and loving it. And I was in the middle of this tension. And it was like a really exciting place to be. It was more exciting than if just everybody loved it. People were spitting venom at me personally a lot. Death threats to like stay out of my neighborhood, all this stuff. And then this whole other crowd was like, we love this so much that we're going to have you paint our fences and our houses. And, our, and they actually liked the polarization that happened as well. Your following, I think, is very loyal. I say this as one of them. Yeah. I have a couple of friends at work that also really admire your art. And I was so thrilled to tell them that we were having this conversation because I was like, yes, I'm stoked to actually be able to have a more personal interaction, not just sort of in passing and learn more about this part of you because there's something really brilliant about your work that just not even knowing who you are, it makes it stand out to you and it draws people in. But I think that you and I had met really briefly twice before at Seattle Street Fair type events. And I know I totally fangirled. I remember having this moment and my wife was like, come talk to him. He's just over there painting. Just tell him you like his artwork. And I was like, I don't know. Should I do that or not? And like, I remember coming over and she's like, you looked happy. And I was like, yeah, he's totally chill. I don't know what my problem is. But like, <laughs> I felt so profoundly impacted by your work that it was daunting to feel like, oh, I could meet the person who's created all of this, you know? And so I think sometimes there's this feeling when we have an opportunity to meet people that we admire, especially artists that we admire, whether that's visual artists or singers or musicians or whatever it might be. Like when you have such an emotional connection to something that another human being produces, I think that we sort of build things up in our head about what that means to us and also how that translates to our feelings about an individual. And it can be really nerve wracking to meet somebody Am I still going to be able to appreciate their art after I meet them? <laughs> I know. Yeah. I still have an experience. I did work for Sasquatch Music Festival mm -hmm. for six years. I was the lead artist there and I met some musicians that I felt that way about. And I was like, I went and knocked on Les Claypool's van when Primus was playing and he came out and had a conversation with me and I just didn't know 
am I going to like this guy? Because he had a huge influence on me growing yeah. up. I even see some aspects of his music in my artwork, you know, that's cool. like, and I wanted to talk to him about that. And he yeah. was cool as hell. He gave me some time. I was like, that's how I want to be. I want to be like him as a whatever level of celebrity I become or am or whatever. And I mean, I'm a much microcosmic compared to him. Well, I mean, I think though, I always say, I actually had this conversation very recently with my wife about this. I don't really seek fame, yeah, but I very much have a desire to be well-respected and well-renowned for whatever it is that I do. Yeah, And so I feel like you're super, super well-known yeah. for your art, but like I said at the beginning of this conversation, you're still sort of very enigmatic. I was actually surprised to see how much content I could find when I was really looking around because there are several interviews with you that you've done over the years, but it was... A moment for sure for me to be able to be like, okay, I can now also put a face to the name and realize that that human connection actually like really built on my appreciation for your yeah. artwork too. And your approachability and your accessibility as a human being and an artist is what really makes those moments, I think, so much more powerful as somebody who's a fan of the art. There's a deeper sense of something to your yeah. work. And I feel that when I look at it. And I think one of the things that really stands out and is really prominent in your art is the eyes of the characters that you create is that's something that is intentional. Well, I mean, it's obviously intentional because it's part of your art, but is that something that came to you or is that something that was inspired? Why is that one of the signature components of your work? I think I was 16 or so when I was drawing a lot and I was drawing with just black pen. And as I was drawing people, I just started really detailing out the eyes and like working on expression just through the eyes. And I realized Everything can be simple in a painting, and if the eyes are prominent and expressive, then you have an access portal into a world where it's just simply through that eye contact that you make with a character. And a lot of the reason I paint the murals the way I do is because I want you to feel like the character is looking at you and having a relationship with you. And it's left its world and has joined our world. And so I don't put as much time into background and put them in these big fancy backgrounds as much. I want you to feel like that thing's living in our world, not you're being drawn into this other world. That's such a really awesome expression and explanation of it, too. And as you're saying that, I'm cycling through my head of things that I've seen that you've painted around the city and then also just stuff that I paid attention to. I was thinking about it when I was prepping for this uh, and was it something along the lines of like the eyes are the windows to the soul kind of thing and it sounds like it is a little bit right that yeah. connectivity and i like that you use the term eye contact it brings those to life also so it brings them into our world and also i think it personifies them a little bit yeah like this walrus on a bicycle is kind of surprised to see you yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> like what are you doing here you know like oh my god there's yeah. a person <laughs> yeah you totally know? There's some kind of subtle humor that I kind of like to touch on the subdued excitement coming from a character, you know, that's kind of just as surprised as you are stopped like, whoa, there's a two headed unicorn right there. And the two headed unicorn's like, whoa, there's a person right there looking yeah. at me. What the heck? You know, that's and super funny. And it's so true. And I think that's sort of what attracts somebody when they 
aren't familiar yet with your work, because it is very much that reaction where it's like, wait, what? Like I said, you see a lot of murals around Seattle, for sure, to varying degrees, varying types, some mixed media and things like that. But with your work, I think that it's the most eye catching for a couple of reasons. I mean, you use a lot of really vibrant colors and contrasting colors. So I think it makes things pop. But with the visuals as you're describing them, you know, that curiosity sort of comes into play where it's like, wait, what is that? And what am I looking at? And what's yeah. looking at me? Right. <laughs> you know, so I totally get that. And it's, I had never thought of it that way, but it's such a perfect articulation and coming from the artists themselves, that certainly helps. Yeah. Yeah. And from a child's perspective, like a five-year-old living in a neighborhood, walks around and sees these characters living in his neighborhood. They're living in his neighborhood. He's not like, oh, if I walked into this mysterious land, I would be with this thing. It's like, no, he's here with me. Yeah. These characters are alive in my neighborhood. And when those kids go to bed at night, they have dreams of these animals walking around and living in there. It's all pretty intentional that these things are here with us. Yeah. Not, we have to go off to a special land to find these things. Like This is the special land. Yeah, I can't help but notice you have a tattoo on your forearm that says magic is everywhere. Do you sort of use that as a mantra when you're thinking about your work and basically what you just described, trying to bring out that magic for people who, especially for children, absolutely. And I think it's probably easier for them. But as adults, I think it's hard to find things that bring us just pure joy without any other sort of nuance or controversy that we really need to think of? And do you feel like that's part of your mission, your life's purpose to be able to like help other adults also see that? Yeah. I mean, what's the expression of celebration? What's the expression of absolute laughter? Or what's the expression of complex feelings? And that's, I think, each mural or each character is trying to portray one of these things, right? Derpy and tired, like derpy. Yes, totally, <laughs> like, totally. Like, oh god, really? Yeah. You know, like <laughs> for sure. Uh, so I'm a magical unicorn. Big deal. You know, I'm kind of bored. Yeah, you know? yeah, um, <laughs> yes. And I think we all have those kind of feelings on a consistent basis, and that all of a sudden you have these things in your environment that you can relate with that are simple and symbolic of what we go through and how we feel and things like that. I really find it fascinating how much goes into your art and not that it's surprising because I think that it makes total sense, but it's also something that gives me as a fan and other people listening who are, aren't familiar with their art, who will be able to become familiar with it, this additional perspective and just really the impact that it can have and that there's really no discrimination in your art, I think is a good way to describe it. And that actually sort of brings to mind, I know that you were doing some artwork when a lot of the protests and stuff were happening in Seattle. Your whimsical characters were taking on some additional responsibilities as right. advocates. Um, yeah. You know, I think I saw a painting that you had done with Black Lives Matter and one with the new pride flag that's been updated and that stuff. It's so cool that you found a really good balance between speaking through your art for what you believe in, but still maintaining also that consistency and that truth to your art. It balanced the honesty of the real world with the whimsy of the artistic world. Yeah. Do you feel like 
that was a new thing for you to sort of take that stance with your art or have you had moments in your career or your life where you feel like you've done that before? I think I really, like I was saying, I grew up in Montana and then we moved around a little bit and we ended up in a small town just out of Seattle called Enumclaw. And I started getting, right when I moved there for the first time in my life, I started getting bullied. People would follow me home from school and push me on the ground. I was the new kid, right? And then I was drawn to a different crowd of people that were much more open-minded and inclusive of weirdness and differentness and things like that. I was kind of part of a subculture. The dominant culture was the conservative bully culture. And so I always felt like I want to break that down, <laughs> you know? Totally. I don't want people to have to experience that. Yes. I saw my friends that were people of color and any form of different than this conservative mentality get pushed around. And I've been on the other side ever since. I guess before age 12, I wasn't really aware. I grew up on a farm and was very isolated. And yeah. Didn't know of it there were these world problems. But by the time I was 12, I knew that there were world problems. And I quickly was on the side of the underdog and have stayed there my whole life. I think it's a good place to be speaking as somebody with a similar mindset. You know, it's hard to grow up and have that feeling of not belonging. I talk about that a lot, especially recently, because it's just coming so much more to the forefront of why I've gotten to the point where I'm trying to care less about what other people think. And that really impacted me when you had mentioned that earlier, too, is that you spend so much time worried about what everybody else thinks. Like, who fucking cares? Like, at the end of the day, doing what you need to do to make sure that you're okay is important. And I think that we often just lean into these expectations that everybody else has of us. And so then we sort of fall victim to this idea that our own self-limiting beliefs, really. And so if you have an experience that sort of forces you to see past that and realize that like you don't fit into that mold, it's really revelatory. It's something that is empowering. What you're talking about, I think, is a way to like sort of befriend our younger selves and give back to people who are maybe experiencing something similar or could experience something similar and have them know that they're not by themselves in this. And that's such a big part of who we are as people to be able to open up and give part of yourself to somebody and say, I know where you're coming from. I've been there too, but like, it's okay. And be who you need to be for you. And the caveat to that, and I always say this is you should have yourself and your best interest in heart, first and foremost, provided you're not a shitty person, yeah. in which case <laughs> we have to bend the rules a little, you right, know, as yeah. long as you're like a kind human being with good intentions, do what you need to do for yourself and screw yeah. everybody else. Yeah. I want the world to know I'm a safe person for them to be expressive and find themselves, right? Totally. I'm part of this culture that is, hey, we're here and protecting you to explore and there's a safe space for your imagination to live, to find your true spirit without the static of this strong cultural agenda to keep you in a box of some sort. And I want the kids in my life, I want the adults in my life, I want anybody to know that, oh, the world's a little bit safer for me to be myself and be comfortable because this person exists. And the more of us that can own that and be that way, and the more that becomes a reality for people. I want my nieces to know that they don't have to be normal. You don't have to be like you can be, if you feel like you are, then that's great. 
Totally. But if you don't feel like you are, your uncle is going to love you and accept you and encourage you. If you feel different, I'm going to be there no matter what. Let your freak flag fly, right? That's sort of the mentality I have too. And so my sister has nieces two and a half now. My nephew was born in February. Unfortunately, I haven't met him yet because of the pandemic and they're back on the East Coast. But I have a very similar mentality when it comes to that too. You know, I grew up really fearing what it meant to be honest with myself because that would mean being honest with other people. And then that puts a lot of pressure on you. Right. And as a kid, you don't need that. And so what you described as being a safe place for other people is so much my mission as well. And so it's especially important to make sure that we're not only providing that, but we're making people around us aware that that's who we are and that's how we think about it. And it takes some adjustment, I think, as an individual to get to that place, because we do have so much of the world swirling around us and inputs into who we are, that sometimes we don't even understand the layers of complexity that have brought them into our personalities. And so sometimes it's untangling all of that to get to this person that you want to be to then be able to be that person to other people. Right. So one of the things that I found really interesting on your site when I was looking through some of the paintings and pieces that you have there was something that is pretty uncharacteristic of the work that you do, which was a painting of Walt Whitman. And I am a massive Walt Whitman fan. I love Leaves of Grass. And I actually have a quote from that tattooed across my biceps. Um, It was just so cool to see that obviously you have some appreciation, I think, for that time in the literary world and the world. Um, I love transcendentalism. I feel like it's not a frequented enough topic. I think that we talk about Thoreau and Emerson and we talk about Walden and self-reliance and how there's these sort of undertones in everybody's life all the time. But is that type of writing something that has also inspired your art or was that sort of just you had a moment and you were feeling like I'm going to paint this? (laughs) No, it absolutely is who I am. And so those paintings came from a show I did called Working Class Hero, which was based on a John Lennon song. And I painted John Lennon and then I did, I think, 60 portraits of my heroes. Oh, cool. And that's where those came from. But I'm definitely a big reader and I love the transcendentalist and Thoreau especially he's not my favorite of them but his ideas I put into practice in my life totally when I started my art career I moved into a camper a truck and camper and I did that because of Thoreau I believed in simplifying getting my personal economy to where I can function and do what I want And I wanted to make art and I couldn't do that living in an apartment because I would have to have a job to pay for that apartment. And that would totally wipe me out at the end of the day and I wouldn't get much art. Yeah. (laughs) So I was like, I want to make art 12 hours a day. How do I do that? Well, I can't have any bills. So how can I not have any bills? How can you not have any bills? Life's eternal question. (laughs) Yeah. And I figured it out. I'm going to buy a truck and camper and I'm going to live on the side of the road Yeah, in Seattle. And that's what I did. And I- How long did you do that for? A long time. (laughs) And I'm drawn back to it. I'd say the majority of the last 12 years have been living out of a vehicle of some kind. School bus, sailboat, small school bus, vans, cars. And I was just obsessed with making these little 
things homes. Like how do you make a van a home and yeah. live in Seattle and get all your artwork done and get it in all the galleries and all the shows and all this stuff. And I've been not living in a vehicle for about two years now. And I am figuring out how to get back into <laughs> one because it's an interesting way to live. You know, it's interesting yeah. to live with less than what the world tells you you have to have. Very true. And figure out ways to make those basic things work, which provides you time. All of a sudden, you have more time. If you can live with less, you have more time. And what's important in life? Is it your stuff or is it time? Well, I think that's a great question, Yeah, which really springs us back to your experience of almost dying, right? It's like, you're not sitting there going, I wish I had more stuff. Yeah. No, give me more time, five minutes, anything at all. Right. And I think about that a lot too, because especially having experienced loss in my life at a young age, that sort of instilled in me this sense of needing to make the most out of life and that, yes, you need certain things to survive. And I could not live in a vehicle. Yeah. But I applaud somebody who can. I actually have two friends who built a tiny house and lived in that for a couple of years. And I was like, you lost me at composting toilet, but (laughs) but more power to you to be able to do that and have the capacity to just exist within that space. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like self-challenge stuff. And then when you do live in a place, I mean, I'm living in an apartment, a two bedroom apartment by myself and it feels like a mansion. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like, well, I could go over to this part of the room, yeah. Yeah, like, go over to this part of the house. Rick, I can go to this other room. Yeah. yeah. I want to take a shower. Yeah, I, yeah. You know, like just simple things that most people are doing. They're so exciting when you have done without them. It gives them more meaning. If you've always had a shower in your living environment, you don't think twice about it. Yeah. But if you don't, then all of a sudden... You have to figure out other ways to take showers. You have to get a membership at a gym or you have to have friends that will say, yeah, sure, come use their shower. Different things like that. And you have to function in the world differently to get those needs met. Was that something that was challenging for you to navigate, especially originally? I think I've always been kind of excited about it. I mean, I started before my art career. I was even doing it, got a super station wagon and just put a bed in the back of it and was camping hiking and exploring the world, living in the back of my car. And it was like, whoa, this is way more fun than having a job and paying rent. Yeah. And then I've gone through so many different back and forths with trying to figure out what's just right. And different times, different things are better for me than others. It's nice to just have a nice warm place. And I've been enjoying it the last couple of years, but part of me is kind of getting bored with it. Like, well, maybe I could a little about, stir crazy. Yeah, a little stir crazy. And I can do anything. I don't need much. I mean, I've lived out of vehicles a lot, but I've also just lived out of a backpack. And and to do that, I think you have to have a philosophical mindset to help you. That's the knowing you're doing it by choice and have worked out the positives and negatives and made the decision that I would rather have 12 hours of my day completely to myself than four hours of my day completely to myself or yes. two hours. But I'm willing to sacrifice this to get this. I think you have to to really enjoy it and really be part of it and don't want to be in it as a victim. You want to be as I'm choosing. It's empowering my life. I definitely get that and that idea of choice and how much that really does make a difference, especially when you mentioned something like living out of your car or a backpack, right? 
I think that people inherently have a sense of if somebody's doing that, they're a victim of circumstance, right? right. Not they're choosing to do that. And there are right. absolutely people that choose to do that. And yeah. to your point. And so I think that it also is sort of breaking down that stigma of what the perception of that is too, because it doesn't right. necessarily mean what people might think that it means that you don't have a job or that you're homeless or whatever it is. Like somebody who has a property very well might be doing those things too, but yeah. it's a sense of freedom that you're able to gain through that experience. Yeah. And I've seen you post a lot of photos of you in the great outdoors, hiking yeah. all sorts of places. So clearly nature plays a big role in your life. And also in your paintings, most of your characters are animals or yeah. something such as like a mythical creature. So do you feel a sense of closeness to nature that's sort of just inherent to your being? Absolutely. Yeah. I feel when I'm in the woods, I just feel it all makes sense. Oh, this is where humans haven't fucked it up. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know, yeah, so in those environments where humans haven't fucked up, there's a perfection. There's no duality or whatever hasn't ruined it yet and there's always just the touch of human contact with environments and it, it does you can feel it there's a shift in fact a shift yeah and the further you get away from that the more perfect it is you know like this world is perfect without us yeah, yeah and we're the ones who come in and change it and make it different that's a really clever assessment of the situation too i feel really connected to nature especially water like i just love to be in and around water and there's yeah. this very freeing element to it of if I'm swimming or something just feeling like I exist in that moment and is the most present that I can be because I mean you have to be if you're swimming like, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. need to be aware of what's going on <laughs> you know, drown I don't think I've ever like kind of made that connection as I was saying it but like yeah. it really it forces you into the present and even just to the point where sitting by water like when we were in Ballard we used to go to Golden Gardens all the time we used to do beach bonfires at yeah. night because I grew up in a landlocked state. I didn't have right. the luxury of being around water all the time. Yeah. So now I'm like, wherever I can get near it, yeah. bring me to it. I don't care. Lakes, oceans, whatever it is, a yeah. pond, a puddle. It's fine. Yeah. Like, Seattle's got plenty of it, but I really can relate to you a lot in that way. And it is one of the really incredible things about the Pacific Northwest and Seattle in particular is that you can be in the city and see Mount Rainier or yeah. Mount Baker and be like, okay, it's actually super accessible and easy to get there. If right. I wanted to go to any of these places or anything closer or smaller right. scale, there's so many options. You could spend a lifetime here and not see everything there is yeah. to see. Yeah. And that connection that we make, it doesn't matter what that is. If we can get that sense in ourselves, that sense of peace inside of ourselves and if being in nature inspires us easier to get to that place then go be in nature and get that like it doesn't matter the idea is being able to get some inner peace while we're here in this world and that inner peace is that serenity and calmness is what makes the world better because we're creating an environment for people to feel safe what you were saying about finding that calm it's so so true i feel things that would make me so angry previously, I'm completely unfazed by now. Yeah. And I can even react cool. in a way that's just actually, it's really not that big a deal. Let's just have a conversation about it. And here's how I think about it. And there's literally no reason to explode. And yeah. so it's like, holy shit, this is what it's like to have inner peace. It's almost like a high in a way where you're like, yeah. I feel good that I'm not stressed out about stuff. And the more that I feel good that I'm not stressed out, the more I want that feeling to occur. So you're like, yes, more of that, please. Right. And so you kind of find this way to like, create a consistent sense of serenity almost. Yeah. It opens up more opportunities for yourself. You're not 
scared of yourself. Yes. And so you're not holding back. When you have an anger problem, you become scared of relationships. You become scared of situations because you don't want that dragon or that monster to come out. Totally. Because when it comes out, you don't have control of it yes. and it destroys everything in its path. Yeah, absolutely. And you're like, uh, so I got to contain this thing and I've got to create these environments and situations where this thing is not allowed to get out. But once you find something different in yourself, a different center, a different base point where that thing doesn't have grounding to do that, then you open up to all those relationships. Instead of like having one road to go down, you have 20 to choose from. From a selfish point of view, you get more out of it Yeah, as a person. That's a know? great point too. Knowing yourself and what matters to you is really like the end game. You know, I mean, we can't live this life for anybody but ourselves at a core level and being somebody who wants to bring goodness into the world and share that with the people you know and love, like that to me is what's most important because we don't leave here with anything. So what do I really want? And I say like, I would rather know that when my time is up, that people feel glad to have known me, that they have fond memories of me, that I have fond memories of them. That's the stuff. And like you said earlier, you know, life's flashing before your eyes. I want to be able to have a moment where I am proud of who I was and how I treated other people. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think the miserable servant doesn't help the world. If you're like, oh, I'm doing so much for people, but I'm very unhappy with myself. You're not doing the world any good. What the world needs is you to somewhat be selfish enough to find your own happiness so you can provide the world a happy person. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I love that idea. And I think it's completely accurate. It goes along with that saying, you can't pour from an empty cup, right? So yeah. like, how can you possibly give back if you are not attending to your own needs? Yeah. Which I mean, sort of to round this out, because I've been loving this conversation, I could talk forever. But you'd mentioned recently that you've been challenging yourself to do a new piece of artwork a day. Yeah. So how did that come to be? Was that sort of just your own process of self-exploration and trying to inspire yourself? Or what was the situation that led to that? Well, I did it in I took this class in college called Dreams, Imagination and Creativity. And we had to come up with a secret project that we didn't tell anybody in the class about. And at okay. the end of the quarter, you brought in your project. And this is what I did all quarter. And my thing I did was a painting a day. And it was 90 days for the quarter or whatever. So I had 90 paintings done. And they were just small little water paintings, but I hung them all up on this wall. Seeing 90 of them together in one room of my work was just this God, simple thing to do every day. But at the end, there was this huge body of yeah. work. I guess for me, it's realizing that being an artist is the importance of discipline over inspiration. And sometimes you get the inspiration because of the discipline. If you make yourself do something every day, whether you feel like it or not, I didn't feel like starting it. And then all of a sudden, 10 minutes in, you're like, whoa, I'm in this space that I'm coming up with stuff I never would have. That's how I feel about working out. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> I'm a like, lot I don't like want to do it. And then I do it. And I'm like, that helped. <laughs> it's, it's a lot like that. Yeah. And so I was finding myself a lot of times I'm doing all this work for other people, all these murals. I'm working with other people's ideas. I'm doing a lot of different paintings for people with their ideas and stuff like that. What I really love is, and I feel like I have an abundance of it, is my own ideas. It's what I want to bring to the world is my own ideas. And so I started on my birthday, which was August 29th. And I'm going to do it for a year as one uncommissioned painting a day, no matter what. That's so and, awesome. I mean, even on a backpacking trip, I bring tiny little 
canvas and like paints and do it, you know, nice. I'm exhausted and I don't want to, but like I told myself I would. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and if of I, the outcome. Yeah. It's like this no matter what thing kind of changes my day. It makes me frame my day around what I want to really be doing. It's what I want to be doing the most. And a lot of times I make these excuses and I don't get around to doing what I want to do the most. I'm doing all this other crap. Yes. How many times I got to run and do all this stuff and I'm not getting to the thing I want. But now in the back of my head, I got to get this painting done today. So I got to be back before I'm exhausted and get this thing done. And then it's like, do I just want to be barely getting it done or do I want to do something really cool every day? And so then I got to give myself more space. I'm doing less bullshit, more of what I like. Yeah. And it's because of this discipline. Yeah, I really respect and admire that. It's certainly not easy. And I mean, I made that sort of as a joke around the working out thing, but it's absolutely yeah. no, accurate it's, for me because like, it's true. It's the same thing. It's the getting out. started. You know, it's, it's yeah. hard to realize the benefit when you're struggling to kick it off. Right. And even just in doing this podcast, I've gone through a season and it was such a learning experience. And I was frustrated the first season that I just didn't really have the bandwidth. I have a day job. So right. it was very much like I have to do all these things. So I have to get that done. And I'm on the board for a nonprofit. So then I'm like, I have to do that stuff. And yeah. my wife had some health issues. So I'm doing that. And it was like, how do I get all of this done and still do this for myself? And so I didn't produce as many episodes as I would have liked last year. But I was really proud of myself when I could say literally exactly a year from when I first launched, I put out my last episode of the season and to be like, I did this for a year. Right. And I did 16 episodes last year. And and when I was starting, one of the things that was my goal was to get past nine episodes because most podcasts that stop, stop just before they hit 10. And okay. so I was like, I don't want to just tip the scale over that. I want to really make sure that I've passed it and sure. that I'm cool. not like, oh, I did 10 and right. that wasn't nine, you know? Yeah. And so I felt yeah, like yeah. there was some sense of validation to your point of looking back on that and being like, I mean, it's more than one a month. So I can at least look to that and be glad for it. And also just what it ended up coming from doing that and doing that amount of work and understanding, okay, how much time do I need to give myself to not just record an episode? That's actually the easiest part because yeah. it's a conversation. That's the part I love, right. but I'm spending hours and hours and hours editing things because my equipment's not up to par or I was speaking with a guest who had a lot of pauses or ums and things like that in between. Right. So when you're spending an hour, an hour and a half recording an episode with somebody, but then you're spending eight hours editing an episode, that could have been eight more conversations, you know? And yeah. so to your point about valuing your time, I was coming into season two, I was like, okay, I want to upgrade my equipment so I can take away some of that pain. And I really want, if I need to, to pay somebody to edit this stuff for yeah. me, because at the end of the day, it will free my time to have more of these conversations and be able to spread more of what I'm hoping to in my message of to your comment earlier about being inclusive and creating that safe space for people. Like that's what matters. Yeah. It's that self-analysis. Yeah. You, you've done that like frees yourself up. I do think it takes some element of strength and discipline to be able to just make that commitment to yourself, not the actual act of doing the thing that you want to do more, but to say I am doing this for me and yeah. committing to that. Right. So one last question for you. So you have painted over 300 murals. You are obviously very renowned throughout Seattle. I see some of your merch and pieces at some of the shops that I go to, which I love. 
What do you see as sort of your next steps as an artist? Do you have thoughts around when the pandemic's over, like wanting to be able to spread your murals to other places outside of Seattle? Actually, I worked with a hypnotherapist on where I want to go. Oh, cool. My future. I did a lot of work with her on how to value myself financially to charge what I'm worth and figure out what that is. Can I interject on that for a second? Yeah. I have had this conversation. I have somebody who does my social media management and she was like, you have to remember that artists provide value. And just because people are doing things for free doesn't mean they should be doing them for free. So I respect where you're going with this because it is a very hard thing to do to put a number on something that isn't tangibly quantifiable. Right. Yeah. So sorry, go on. But no, I just I, I had to say I, it's very topical for something I was recently yeah. discussing. Yeah. I mean, I had to do a lot of work around it, you know, figure out what that is. Like I had to write down all my experience, how many hours I've put into this thing and where am I to where I can charge the amount that I charge. And I think when you do have that self-respect, people mirror it and yeah. respect it back. And then this other thing I did was where do I want to be? Where do I see myself? And I see myself doing projects all over the world. And I really like creating bigger environments, like the work I've done with Plastic Pub, where I'm doing these big sculptures, murals, and interactive playground-like things. Yeah, they're so cool. We've been to two of the flat sticks, the one in Kirkland and the one in South Lake Union. Yeah. And I love the sculptures that you have in South Lake Union. They're super cool. What are those made of? And did you actually do the sculpting of them too? Yeah, they're made out of styrofoam. Okay. And yeah, I've carved them out of styrofoam and then coated them with a plastic. The first set I did, I did with an artist, Josh Brown, who helped me with the tools, taught me the tools and helped me figure it out. And so I kind of subcontracted through him to have him teach me how to do it. And after that, I've been just doing it on my own. Oh, that's super um, and I've, cool. I've changed a lot of the tools to like work with things that I prefer less toxic and things like that. Like I'm yeah. not melting the styrofoam. I'm using an electric chainsaw instead to get the main thing out. Okay. There's just things that like, okay, that was bothering me and I've found my ways to make to it do, more palatable to do it. Yeah. And I love it. When I did those hypnotherapy sessions, I envisioned that creating these big environments that people can interact with. Yeah. And I envisioned it differently. I thought it would be in like I envision it in museums, right? Where people come and pay the museum thing and then they come through this big Henry world, like yeah. Willy Wonka land. Which would show. also be super cool yeah. and I'm totally for it. <laughs> and that's and that's where I want it to be is I want it to be a little more that direction eventually. But just that I envisioned that and all of a sudden these gigs with doing these interactive environments in Plastic Pub just fell into my lap. Okay. I'm all about manifestation. Yeah. And it's like, well, here's your practice runs. Yeah. You know, see what you can do. And like, totally. wow, I get to do this and get paid. Yeah. Even um, better. <laughs> yeah. So I'm getting paid to do these things that this is what I wanted to do. And I didn't even realize it till I was halfway done with one of them where I was like, this is what I envisioned. It's a little bit of a shift and different, like it fits into the world that I live in a little more than my imagination, but eventually it'll be where my imagination is. I just envision myself like light and free, emotionally light and happy and creating things and creating things bigger than I can just create on my own. I want to be doing things where I have like, oh, here's a $2 million budget and you have six months to create this thing. Yeah. That's kind of where I want to be. That's so awesome. I mean, I feel like I've said that a lot, but it's just really 
fantastic to be able to have that insight into how you see your career continuing to unfold. And, you know, when I've said career throughout this conversation, it's something that I kept kind of going back and forth on as I was thinking about it. Do you feel like this is your career or do you feel like it's more kind of your life's work? It's both. It is how I make money and it is how I communicate yeah. with the world. It's my language. You know, it's like I'm a visual, symbolic communicator and there's probably way more advanced ways to communicate than I'm communicating but it's like even if mine has a real primitive level it still connects with part of other people's minds that other things can't and I find joy in it and yeah I like how families get connected around it something mutually they all like we all love this you know like whoa I hear that I get that feedback that's how I connect with my teenage daughter because we both love your work yeah that's the only thing we agree on in this world <laughs> and it's like Damn, that's cool. That's a connective thread that I'm creating and making happen. And I'm really proud of that. Yeah. And absolutely, you should be. I mean, yeah. I'm certainly honored that you took the time to chat with me today and, and to come by and be my first in-person oh, interview for season I'm two. I'm honored that you invited me. Thank, it was really thank cool. you so much for being yeah. here, Ryan. Yeah. I totally appreciate your time. And yeah. I'm just looking forward to getting to know you more and yeah, seeing more likewise. of your work. Yeah. Likewise. I'm excited about your podcast. Thank you. Yeah. Well, gang, that's all for this episode of the Who the Fuck podcast. Thanks for listening and a big thank you to Ryan Henry Ward for sharing his story and his time. Visit itsahenry.com to check out his artwork and merch, all available for purchase. While you're there, sign up for Ryan's email list and follow Henry Beyond Museums on Instagram to see the latest and greatest from the creative mind of Seattle's very own Henry. This episode's Who the Fuck for a Cause is in support of Planned Parenthood. If you have the means, visit whothefck.com slash donate to contribute and help ensure that Planned Parenthood can continue to protect and provide reproductive health care for millions. Make sure you subscribe to the Who the Fuck podcast on your preferred platform. And if you like what you hear, go ahead and share the love by giving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Share your email at whothefck.com to receive updates about the podcast, merch promos, and more. Until next time. Until next time.